Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to the podcast series, Faculty and Research. I'm delighted this week to welcome Dr. Daniel Shore, a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Department of English. His scholarly training is in the literature of the Renaissance and the humanist rhetorical tradition, with a focus on John Milton and the 17th century. Dan has published two books, the most recent from 2018, titled Cyber Formalism, The Histories of Linguistic Forms in the Digital Archive. By using searchable digital archives as a valuable research tool, this book asks literary scholars to expand their conception of the sign to include abstract linguistic forms. It shows how we can study the careers of these linguistic forms as they travel across hundreds or thousands of years of literary and intellectual history. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Great to have you here. Maybe we should begin by, uh, when people ask you, what do you do, what do you say? So right now my job as a professor and a researcher is split, in a sense, along two tracks. I write and teach about the literature of the 17th century. And then, as you explained in your introduction, I have a growing uh, interest in linguistics and uh, studying literary and linguistic creativity, and uh, specifically studying uh, studying abstract linguistic sign units that sometimes travel over, over long periods of time and that shape the way that we we speak and express ourselves. So the, those two things sometimes fit together and sometimes they, they go in separate ways. So when you say sign units, what do you mean by that? Yeah, let me give you an example. If you hear someone say, red is the new black, or whiskey is the new beer, or 40 is the new 30, or coffee is the new wine, or sitting is the new smoking, you learn an abstract pattern, X is the new Y, that you could then reuse in some way that you've never heard anyone else use before, you by basically filling the X and Y categories in new ways. What's interesting about that is you learn it as a unit, and you learn it not just as a form, the, the, the way that you say it, but then you also learn that it has an associated meaning, essentially that the, in the case of, say, sitting is the new smoking, you learn that uh, sitting is the new bad habit, the bad habit that's terrible for your health. So it has a sense of a kind of fashionable replacement of one category by another. Uh, it's a conventional meaning that's associated with that form, but that you can use in new ways uh, with different words. So is your puzzle as a researcher, as a scholar, to sort of find the origin of sign units and watch the history of them? Is that what intrigues you? Yeah, it's rarely as simple as origin because there's never a clear point of beginning. People have been speaking for a long time and signs emerge from other signs. But yeah, it's about telling these long stories about where things come from, how they change and shift over time. And I draw on the work of, uh, I think, a remarkable group of linguists. Uh, often they call themselves construction or cognitive linguists. Um, they're often usage-based, meaning that they study the way that our grammars emerge from listening to the, and reading the things that other people have written. What I do that's different from the construction linguists is that, is that I focus on the, the kind of cultural impacts of these forms, uh, though they are interested in 
really, uh, some case, technical details of what they would call schematic constructions. I'm interested in the work that they do in culture, the way that they shape how we think, how we interact with each other. I'm interested most recently in how they shape the things that we yell at each other on the street even. Um, I'm interested in the way that they create meaning, sometimes meaning that we ourselves have a hard time getting our heads around. But you also have this other side of you that's well-placed in a department of English where you're studying 17th century writers. So how did you wander into this linguistics perspective? There is the technical linguistic side, which I'm always learning and, and reading about to, to get up to speed. Uh, and then there's my training in the history of English literature. I think the two things go together really well. We should be wondering uh, not just uh, how, for example, Shakespeare wrote a whole play, but how did he write an individual line from a play? Uh, if I can give you one more example, in uh, King Lear, after, um, after Regan uh, and her husband Cornwall pluck out the eyes of the Duke of Gloucester, she says it's an incredibly cruel thing. She says, let him smell his way to Dover. Um, and she's using what linguists call the way construction there, right? And, and, you, and I, you or I could use that, uh, I danced my way across the floor, I, I juggled my way past the guards. Uh, you can substitute any verb in there and then specify a path. Uh, Shakespeare is using the way construction in a, in a creative and unusual way there. Um, that's part of understanding Shakespeare's poetry, his, his artistry, uh, as well as understanding the conventional linguistic repertoire from which he was drawing. So the linguistic and the literary, I think, go, go quite well together. Uh, but that's part of my job, is actually to, to try to talk literary scholars into paying close attention to some of these mechanisms of linguistic construction beyond just individual words. So, so you're really putting together two disciplines uh, in, in your work. And I'd, I'd be interested in your, your own personal journey on putting those together, how, how you've been received in, among linguists and, and how your, your peers and uh, as students of English literature view your journey of putting these together. So I'll, I'll say it's one of the benefits of being a tenured professor that you can take the risk of writing uh, a book that you may not know in advance how well it will be received in your discipline. I would not have written cyber formalism as a first book. Uh, it would be unclear what kind of position I would take up in a department. They wouldn't run a search at the time for, for someone like me, by and large. And it, so it's as a second book that I essentially I was able to undertake this knowing that I would have to uh, meet the question of legibility for multiple disciplines. Um, uh, I'm, I'm always anxious about whether linguists are going to think I am a, a, a trespasser or a, um, a dilettante, uh, but I have found them to be remarkably welcoming and encouraging. For literary scholars, uh, I mean, things have been going really well, and uh, I'm okay with the idea that, that not everybody might be on board with what I'm doing. That's, part, of, again, part of the privilege of the position of, of, of being tenured is to, is to try to make the case, uh, accepting that some people may have doubts. Um, my own story, you know, like I think a lot of literature professors, I, I started out by, by just being just totally enthralled with literature, uh, finding it as a kind of, as a kind of anxious kid, uh, maybe a little shy, uh, finding it as a kind of imaginative res refuge um, growing up. Um, but in the process of reading a lot of fiction, realizing that what I what I really enjoyed was uh, the shape of sentences as they unfolded, the kind of eventfulness of sentences, um, the way that they can surprise you uh, or upend your expectations. 
so that was always something uh, growing up that I, I was enthralled by. And it, it's uh, been a process of learning what the best descriptive vocabularies and frameworks are for, for actually being able to describe that and understand that. Uh, and uh, a lot of those are not actually native to the discipline of literature. And that's why I've looked elsewhere. That's why I've looked to linguistics. So, so go back in your personal history. I, I get the sense that this was at least a kernel of your identity very early on. And uh, do, you, do you, looking back on your life, do you see that, yeah, it's quite logical that you ended up where you did? These sorts of narratives are always retrospective fictions, but I'll give you one example. When I was in the third grade, I went to my teacher and I said, why is a chair called a chair? There's no reason for it to be called the chair versus anything else. And the teacher then sent me to a, a kind of gifted and talented uh, instructor who opened up the dictionary to the back of the uh, back page where they had a map of how the languages descended from Indo-European uh, and proceeded to then describe to me the, the, the lineage of languages from Indo-European up to present-day English. And that had absolutely nothing to do with my question. But that curiosity there, why is it that we have the words and the names for the things that we do? Why is it that we speak the language that we do has been there uh, from a very young age? And I, I think one of the exciting things to me about construction linguistics is that it actually places our creative capacity with language within the domain of the sign, within thinking about pairings of form and meaning, whereas earlier frameworks had, uh, Chomsky and frameworks had essentially uh, put those two things into different faculties, into different subject areas, grammar versus lexicon. So, so I've, yeah, I, I guess I can tell you a story about why things that I'm studying now reach back very far into my, into my interests mm -hmm. and passions. So in your new book, the words of digital archive appear. We've all heard in academia the phrase digital humanities and just teach us what, what that means and uh, how, do, how do you fit in to, to that phrase? So digital humanities, I am not going to define that term for you because there's been probably dozens of articles uh, wringing hands over the term digital humanities. Uh, I will say that my work is pretty, pretty idiosyncratic relative to the work of other people who are using big digital corpora or archives to study the history of literature. And the, the distinction is that I am using these archives to basically expand the range of signs that we can study. Uh, historically, right? So, so to go back to the initial example, you won't find X is the new Y in any dictionary, any index, uh, any concordance, but you can search for that. You can search for blank is the bl new blank or noun is the new noun in a, a properly annotated linguistic corpus uh, with part of speech tags. Um, so that's my, my goal. Most of the work uh, using digital tools um, is, is quantitative. It involves uh, chopping text up into bags of words and then using various methods, either modeling or statistical characterization, to identify large-scale trends. So, so I'm very much on a different track, uh, although I sometimes caucus with uh, those, those folks uh, end up at the same conferences or giving papers t together or on the same lecture circuit. I think what I'm up to is, is quite different. So I'm interested in, in how you do your scholarship. Uh, some of our colleagues uh, set aside a few hours every day some get up early every morning and do their thing before they enter the other parts of their life. How do you do your scholarship? 
it's a mess every time. <laughs> I, I wish I had uh, some specific discipline that keeps working over and over again. But really, it's about figuring it out uh, day by day and, and situation by situation. One thing that I remember that my graduate advisor, Barbara Lewalski, um, who was a wonderful advisor, told me was she said, when you make your list of things to do every day, you're going to put down, naturally put down the things that are most pressing first. So, you know, get those student papers back, respond to the scheduling email, um, the, the things that are exigent. And she said, every day you need to flip your schedule upside down. So the things that may not may not come due for years, right? Like writing writing a paragraph of that next book, those have to come first. Your emails can wait. The paper grading can wait until later in the day. And if you if you make that hour in the morning or those two hours in the morning, then the other things will get will get sorted somehow out. the papers will yeah. get graded. They'll get graded. Uh, I wish I could say I use that technique uh, as consistently as as uh, it was recommended to me, but. Uh, Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. how, how about uh, faculty have an interesting collection of balls they have to juggle all the yeah. time? I'm interested in how you navigate teaching and scholarship. And uh, do you see those as integrative? Do you see those in conflict? How, how do you discipline yourself on those two roles you have? They don't always fit. I wouldn't say there's any natural synergy between what I'm working on and the things that I end up teaching. What I will say is that although I am cross-disciplinary and I'm very much invested in some of the things that linguists can teach us, I'm also really invested in a, a kind of disciplinary narrative of literary study, literary and cultural study, I would say, um, and critical theory would be part of that. And so when I'm teaching students uh, articles that ostensibly have nothing to do with the research questions I'm, I'm asking, I'm still very much thinking about what is the shape of the discipline? What are the key questions we're asking? How do I make the, the work that I'm doing legible and meaningful to people who are asking quite different questions? For example, about narrative form. Right? I'm working at the level of the sentence or the utterance. Other people are working at the level of, of whole narratives or genres uh, like the novel. Um, how do I bring those two fields together? What can I, what can I, and the the work that I'm doing offer to to people who are asking those other questions? So, so it's less that I am teaching my work in the classroom or that it directly contributes than that it uh, keeps me grounded in a in a community and a discourse and a practice. Some of our colleagues are working. You know, they devote themselves to one problem and just pound away at it until they finish and others are working on multiple streams at the same time. But what kind of uh, scholar are you on that score? Yeah, I started out by saying I'm I'm definitely working on multiple streams. Uh, I have probably two books in the in the fire right now and I'm publishing articles uh, on Milton and 17th century literature on the one hand and then on uh, linguistic forms or schematic constructions on the other. Uh, sometimes those things come together in fruitful ways, and I'm always on the lookout and excited when that happens. So uh, I do have work on Shakespeare and his use of uh, the way construction and others. But again, it's uh, I have a kind of long list of things I want to write, and then when I finish one article, I look at the list and I say, which one's next? Doesn't always doesn't always uh, line up uh, with one book or the other, one interest or the other. One of the things I think students uh, need more insight on is the the rate at which uh, scholars ideas uh, pay off and don't pay off so how do you looking back at your own product do you see a whole lot of ideas that uh, you thought at one time were 
were really meritorious that didn't pan out for one reason or another? Yeah, I have a folder of, of failures or things that I put some time into and realized weren't quite right. There are fields, uh, probably something like mathematics, where you just realize that the proof you were trying to do isn't, isn't, isn't actually provable, or perhaps statistics where you realize that, that the trend you were tracking is, is an artifact of your methods, um, where then you just put it away entirely. Usually, I would say with literary and critical study, there, there are ways that even your failures can become instructive. So it's rare that things are, are entirely worth, worthless, even if, even if they don't quite work out the way that you want them to be. Sometimes it's less about putting them on the cutting room floor than about stepping back and thinking, okay, my initial claims aren't quite as valid as I had hoped, or they don't hold up to scrutiny. What, what can I then claim? What, what, what's, a, what's a better position to come to? And that, and that sort of revision and inquiry, I think, is, is value, a valuable part of the discipline, part of my so, own work. So that sounds like a story of an evolving understanding of the phenomena you're, you're interested in, and it turned out a little different than you thought yes. at the beginning, but there's still insight that, yes. that you're getting. And so I, I guess, is it the case that sometimes that process is a multi-year process and you might put aside something for a while and then come back to it? Or once you put something aside, do you think it's over? No, in fact, right now I'm, I'm just coming back to a paper that I drafted probably two years ago and uh, then revisited a year later in between other projects. And I'm hoping this will be the last revisitation where I'll, I'll just get to finish it off. Um, it was set aside because uh, oftentimes our scholarly lives are not just planned out in advance. You get requests to do things. Uh, the school year uh, uh, creeps up on you when you, you thought you had time to finish writing. Uh, and so you, I come back to things pretty regularly that... Uh, come back as well with a, a new perspective on it, having read more, having thought about it. In some cases, having uh, given versions of it as, as conference talks, getting to enrich and, and rework things uh, in a better form that I would have been able to do when I set them down a year ago. I wonder if you could uh, share with us, looking back on your work, do you see kind of an evolutionary pattern? Is it building? To, are there a set of central questions that you think uh, would describe your entire product, or do you think it's a set of independent questions, each of which is interesting to you? I have not yet synthesized all of my interests into a, a single unified uh, uh, locus or manifold. I do think that the question of how we make utterances, the shape of the utterances, or the, the kind of uh, eventfulness of the utterances that we that we use day to day, and then that we find in a kind of heightened form in, in poetry and literature, I think that's I think that's going to be central to what I do throughout. But I also have philosophical questions. I uh, have written essays on uh, the Kantian idea of the conditions of the possibility of experience that don't uh, don't fit into a kind of linguistic framework. Um, those will animate probably my uh, my my next book on uh, 17th century literature. Sometimes things can just be on their own without needing to fit together. Um, it, uh, eclecticism is a is a fine quality of, of a research life. Um, research lives are long and can be animated by a lot of things. We we have just a, a few more minutes, I think. So tell us, what are you most excited about right now that you're working on? What What's uh, keeping the juices flow right now? 
So I just turned in uh, a very short 2,000 word essay on uh, Black Lives Matter and its children. Uh, by children, I mean utterances of the form X Lives Matter. So the most frequent ones are All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, both of which I've had shouted at me at protests and while holding a Black Lives Matter sign, White Lives Matter, which the Nazis and white supremacists at uh, Charlottesville were carrying. So it's a, it's a linguistic form that I've been able to, to study uh, with the help of digital tools, but that obviously has a, a really current, uh, strong uh, political element. It's a case, it's a kind of case study for me that, that is, fits my research interests and is also really timely. And uh, so I'm excited to, to have written about that and to keep thinking about it as well. So, so what questions does the essay address and answer? If it shows us the way that an, what linguists call an exemplar, it's like a best example of an utterance, in this case, Black Lives Matter, can form the basis for the things that people say subsequently. So, so really, it's the, the case that um, uh, Patrice Cullors, Opal Tometi, and Alicia Garza, who, who created the Black Lives Matter hashtag, they've, they've really shaped political speech since following the, the murder of Trayvon Martin. They've, they've really shaped the way that people express particular interests in society, uh, the way that identity groups um, assert their value in society has really been shaped by, by their speech act, by the, by the creation of Black Lives Matter. Um, and that's that to me is a is a fascinating thing that we can study empirically uh, as long as we have a, a theory that allows for entities like X Lives Matter, linguistic forms like that. Well, Daniel Shore, thank you for being with us today and and telling us about your intellectual journey and the important work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me.